if you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Opie Show. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. A native of Chicago's South Side, Khalil Gibran Muhammad is a professor of history and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School and the Susan Young Murray Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies at Harvard. He's a former director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, a division of the New York Public Library and the world's leading library and archive of global black history. His research and writing examines the broad intersections of race, democracy, inequality, and criminal justice in modern U.S. history. He's the author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America, which won the 2011 John Hope Franklin Best Book Award in American Studies. He has appeared in the Oscar-nominated documentary 13th and in the outstanding documentary Slavery by Another Name. Our guest today on The Fred Opie Show, Khalil Gibran Muhammad. What is the oldest thing you know about your family history? Oldest thing I know. What an interesting question. On my mother's side, I have a cousin, and he has traced my mother's grandparents' generation back to the 1870 census. Essentially, he's seen the listing of my great-grandfather as a child, and we know that his grandfather was a Mississippi planter who also served in the Confederacy. Irish-American, Mississippi, Confederate stock on my mother's side of the family. Who would have known? Wow. Yeah. As a kid, what kind of student were you? So I was, uh, I was always a good student. Um, I carried a book just about everywhere I went. My mother would always joke that uh, whenever we left the house, I carried a book with me. I didn't necessarily read all of these books cover to cover, but it was important to me to never be bored. And so I always carried uh, a book with me. I did good in school. I was kind of a top 10 percenter, but I had a lot of interest, played sports uh, in high school, started working in seventh grade after school and pretty much worked six days a week. To some degree, I was never committed to being a straight A student because I had other interests, and so I had to balance those two things. What sports did you play growing up? Formally, I played tennis uh, all four years of high school, which I started in junior high. My senior year, I uh, I bowled on the bowling team, which was a a lot of fun. I I had never bowled before I was 14 years old, but once I uh, started doing it for fun, I really loved it. So for like three or four years, I I'd bowl by myself for hours. So yeah, I bowled my senior year. And then in college, I rode crew, lightweight crew, for uh, during my first semester freshman year. I quit to pledge, which I don't really have any regrets, but I would have finished a year if I, if I had not decided to pledge. And then I played two years of uh, varsity lightweight football, which was part of a small 
conference of six schools that Penn played against. So, yeah, I played sports in high school and college. You went to UPenn as an undergrad. Why Penn? Well, I only applied to four schools, very different from our kids' generation. Three were Midwestern. uh, Two were um, very close to Chicago. Penn was my reach school, but largely it was because it was on the East Coast in Philadelphia near my father. He'd been living in New York City about a decade by that time. And and, uh, if I got into Penn, I wanted to go so I could spend more time with him. What was your undergrad major? I majored in economics, uh, but I had a lot of AFAM classes, so it was sort of an undeclared minor. And then very late in college, I thought that um, I might want to be an accountant. So I took as many accounting classes as I could my senior year, which was, I think I took three classes that year. How did you go about choosing economics as a major? I, like yourself, was a kid of the 80s, and uh, I had a sense that success was defined by making money in the business world. And so that's that's how I thought about what college was about. Um, because I started working in a small business, a local computer store starting in 1984, I pretty much done everything within that context, uh, from building computers to selling them. Uh, I was the store manager, I was the bookkeeper, I was the payroll clerk. I guess I'd had this you know, deep grounding in a small business environment, and so naturally it seemed like the next step would be to go to college and study business, uh, which translated into, for me, majoring in economics. Um, so that's, that's how I chose the, the major. Did you do any internships while you were at Penn? So I didn't do business internships for most of my summers in college. I'd come back to Chicago. My mother was an administrator with the Chicago Public Schools, and so she would more or less find me an internship, a paid internship at the Board of Education. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I did that most of my time, uh, summers. But one summer I did work at Prudential Insurance Company on their trading floor which is my junior year uh, summer, just before my senior year of college. And that was important because I, it was really the first time I got an up-close look at uh, corporate culture. And in some ways, it changed me pretty quickly. I decided I didn't want to do anything with finance, and that's why I started thinking about accounting uh, because of that experience. How did you and your family pay for your undergrad uh, education? Pretty traditionally, my uh, father, because my parents had divorced, my father was on the hook for college. And so he paid his portion um, of the parent commitment. Uh, I took out loans, and that covered pretty much the rest. I didn't really do any heavy-duty work study. I, I worked a little bit here and there, a couple different kinds of jobs. But it wasn't essential. College was a lot more affordable. Even a private Ivy League education was a lot more affordable than I graduated college literally with $12,000 worth of debt, which it still took me a long time to pay off. But by comparison to today, that's not a lot of money. I think it took you maybe five years or 10 years to pay it off. It definitely took longer than five years, probably closer to 10. It's a little fuzzy in my head, uh, but it, you know, it, was, it, it took a while. You have one child in college right now, is that right? One child in college, yes. It, did it impact at all the decision of where you and your wife would say, sure, you can go to school there? 
thinking about your loan situation? No, because we are in a financial position to pay for, um, we think we can cover all our kids doing one at a time, although we have a second one who's heading in next year, so we'll have two. But we more or less are committed to paying for college for them, and therefore we don't expect that they'll take out loans in the way that I did. We want to make sure that the balance of the schools they choose in terms of affordability and hoping that once we have two kids in school that we don't have to pay full freight for everybody. But, you know, that's a bridge we haven't crossed yet. This is The Fred Opie Show. We'll be right back. My wife, Dr. Tina Opie, worked as a management consultant before earning her Ph.D. at NYU Stern School of Business and becoming a tenured faculty member at Babson College. She has worked with the NFL, UBS, American Express, and Hulu to help their organizations do the hard work of becoming more inclusive. Tina Opie's consulting group can help your organization develop a strategy for elevating women and people from different racial ethnic backgrounds to leadership positions. Tina's work on inclusion, appearance policies, authenticity, and or shared sisterhood will make a positive difference in your organization. Contact Tina at Opie Consulting Group, LLC, at gmail.com. That's Opie Consulting Group, LLC, at gmail.com. We're back. So now that you've been out of school for quite a while and been working and lived life, what would you make a required course before one graduates college to get ready for life? <laughs> for me, uh, that w- that's an easy one. You'd have to take a, a course that um, unpacks the history of race, racism, and colonialism for for all students, every single child that goes to college. It seems to me that uh, you learn a lot about power. You learn a lot about the shape of the world, learn a lot about human nature and the capacity to invent categories for the purposes of oppression, and obviously all the other practical skills that we hope our children master, literacy, numeracy, all those things generally are in the service of the scramble for power. I'd like to think that by learning those lessons as foundational to education, people might put their literacy and numeracy in the service of something other than uh, some kind of version of survival of the fittest. Can you think of a undergraduate course that uh, for you was really notable, making you who you are today or making you start to think a little broader than just making money? Probably the course that is most memorable is a course, I believe the title of the course was Black Psychology. It was taught by uh, a guy named Howard Stevenson, who's actually still at Penn in the Graduate School of Education. The thing I'll, I'll remember most, it'll never go away, is the first session of class in a class of mostly white students, but maybe it was 40% black. But like most classes at Penn, even, even in black studies, it's very rare to have all black students in a classroom. He told us that the material in the class would be difficult and that the sense of discomfort or what he called tension in the room was when everyone was learning the most. And it was the first time, that was my senior year, it was the first time that anyone had taken on that 
this sort of issue of the racial climate of the classroom as a, as a space for learning. In a way, all of us, by experiencing forms of discomfort, you know, we're challenging our, our core beliefs. Uh, he went on over the course of the semester to be pretty amazing and had us do some field studies, like sending us to the mall to see if we were being profiled. And I remember writing for the first time about black church experiences um, and sort of thinking about authenticity in relationship to spirituality. Uh, it was a lot. And, and in the end, and this I say, I say this for last because he also showed us the 60 Minutes clip segment on Brian Stevenson's efforts to free an innocent man that is the subject of the Just Mercy book and, and now the film. Uh, and the reason he showed it to us, this was back in 19, uh, early spring of 1993, um, was because Brian Stevenson is his brother. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable all, all around. And of course, I, you know, Brian Stevenson was not who he is today at that time. And, uh, and I didn't know the kind of career I was going to end up having with respect to either Brian's work or his brother, Howard, who was my professor. What was your first job after undergrad? My first job was at Deloitte and Touche in Center City, Philadelphia. It was uh, one of the big six accounting firms. I think now they're down to five, maybe four, and uh, it's now Deloitte. It um, does consulting and tax practice as well as audit services. Yep, that was uh, first job. So I know you went on to graduate school at, at Rutgers studying history. How did that decision come about? I knew within two weeks, particularly during the training as a first year at the firm, at the accounting firm, that this probably wasn't the right career move for me. I had gone to college to study business, to become a successful business person. And so graduating and getting that job was sort of the culmination of the plan that I'd put in place uh, when I went to college. But I kind of have been changing all along the way with exposure of course content and material, some of which I've already described. And so once I finally settled in, I thought, man, I don't, I don't know if, this, if I'm going to make it in this environment. One of the interesting things about accounting, particularly as an auditor, is you have to be very versed in accounting rules because at the end of the day, there are regulations uh, for issuing audit opinions about the financial reports of companies. It struck me pretty quickly that I was going to have to be really smart as an accountant. And I thought, man, if I have to be this smart as an accountant, maybe I should be this smart <laughs> doing something else. And, uh, and so I started to reflect and think about the subject areas that were of greater interest to me, and I decided to go to grad school. Uh, it took me 22 months to pivot because I had done nothing to prepare for grad school. I didn't have any savings. Uh, I just started working. My mother didn't think it was such a great idea because she's like, why would you want to be a teacher? She didn't really think about it, me being a professor. She just thought about it like being a teacher, and she thought, you know, you're going to be a successful professional. This is not the plan. Um, so I had a lot of things to do to get ready to make that move. So you went on to have uh, the eminent scholar David Levering Lewis as your dissertation advisor. What was it like to work with him? Tell me about the, the first meeting with him. Interesting. So the first meeting with him was actually by phone when I was considering coming to Rutgers. 
David had just joined Rutgers maybe a year or two before, and Rutgers at the time was building a very strong cohort of faculty, particularly black faculty, doing uh, African-American history. Deborah Gray White was already there. Mia Bay was on her way. They would also hire Chris Brown, uh, who's a 19th century scholar of British abolition. They hire Brent Edwards, uh, Herman Bennett. It, it was a really august moment, and and Rutgers would be quickly become one of the top five uh, history programs for African American um, as a as a as a field. And so David was trying to recruit me, which was obviously flattering, but he was trying to keep me from going to UC Riverside to study with Sterling Stuckey. <laughs> so they didn't like each other, uh, so I ended up talking to both of them um, over the course of the recruitment process. In the end, David won out. Rutgers more or less presented a better financial package. I wasn't too keen on going to California at the time, and uh, and I have no regrets. I totally made the right decision um, studying with David Lewis. I have to confess, I was not nearly as sophisticated as you in checking <laughs> out graduate schools. I'm thinking as you're talking, who taught this brother all this stuff? How did you know to do all those different things? I mean, those the, what you did is the advice I now am in to know and give to students that I've had about going to graduate school. How did you know this back then? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's a good question. Um, some of it is because my father was good friends or is good friends with a guy named Arna Bontomp, Jr., and Arna is the son of the famous Chicago writer, Arna Bontomp Sr., who's a fiction writer. Arna Bontomp Jr. taught at Hampton and was a historian. And so when I expressed interest in going to grad school, Arna became an advisor and, and basically helped me uh, figure out where to go, including identifying Rutgers. So he, so I can't take any credit. He essentially told me that these are the best places to go for what you're interested in doing. David Lewis is looking for students. You should reach out to him. And so that's how it happened. So, so what was he like um, working with him as, as a dissertation advisor? What would you tell people who have read his work but don't know him? Oh, man. So, uh, so David is, first of all, a fierce progressive. Um, you know, he's old school, not new left, but old left progressive, which obviously is, shouldn't be a surprise uh, as a two-volume, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer of Du Bois. He was very demanding. So in a typical graduate colloquium, as many folks uh, who you know have been in graduate school know, particularly for history, you read a book a week, which is a lot. I mean, typically folks have their hands full with three classes, and each class you're reading at least three books a week and maybe an article in each one. So it's a lot. In David's class, which was a year-long seminar, we had to read as many as three to five books every week. And somewhat like what you've seen or people might have seen on television or watching a movie when – there's a scene of students in a law school class and the professor is holding court in front of the room and then he just randomly points at somebody and says, you know, tell me what happened in this legal decision and the student is supposed to know. That's exactly how David 
a quiz does uh, in class. And so out of those three to five books we were reading a week, he could pick any random topic on any subject from any of the readings and then literally call on somebody and say, ah, Khalil, tell me what did Walter White think of the Armenia conference in 1934? (laughs) So it was terrifying. But he was also very personable, and he cared a lot for us, uh, and he went to bat for us in every conceivable way possible. So you go on to become a professor. You served uh, as a professor at the University of Indiana, and then you get recruited to work at the Schomburg. I guess at a very young age. What was something you thought you understood about being a director of the Schomburg? But once you took the job, you realized man, I had that totally wrong. <laughs> I thought that that I would be able to convince people on the merits of an argument about why the Schomburg Center needed to be more visible to different audiences when I got there. Having grown up in Chicago and not in New York, even though I'd spent many summers there as a kid visiting my father, I knew that essentially no one in my family had ever heard of the Schomburg. And even though I'd heard of it um, starting in graduate school, when I first went there for research, I knew that most people I'd gone to college with had never heard of the Schomburg. But when I got to the Schomburg and when I tried to use my own sense of the opportunities for raising the visibility of the center beyond Harlem and certainly beyond the usual um, stakeholders like researchers and everyday patrons, a lot of my staff kind of bristled. They, they, took, they took umbrage or insult at the idea that everyone didn't know the Schomburg. So I had my work cut out for me in, in that sense because I had to tactfully figure out how to get people to accept the challenge of raising our visibility without feeling like I was belittling their own accomplishments because they had taken a lot of pride in the work that they'd done in, in making the center what it was when I took over. That's, that's interesting. And I, I could see how that could be a delicate job to do. Uh, mm-hmm. with the staff, but that is, that's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was a no brainer from the outside looking in, which is why I came in with this kind of enthusiastic, all right, everybody, let's, you know, let's, let's raise the visibility. Let's re re reinvent the brand. Let's get everybody excited. And they were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> everybody already knows what the Schomburg center is. I was like, oh, right, but, but right. no, that's not true. I <laughs> know uh, that's no, I, I could. Wow. That's, that's, I did not expect that response, but it totally makes sense to me. We're going to take a commercial break. This is The Fred Opie Show. For related content, visit our website at fredopie.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. I live by the mantras, agents of positive change focus their energy on learning. Learners are earners, and we are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Purchase a great book, audiobook, or CD during our fantastic $10.99 or less limited time offer sale. We have slashed the price on my Zona Hurston biography and on Southern Food and Civil Rights, the history of the role of food and U.S. movements from the Great Depression to Occupy Wall Street. Cook and bake the related historic recipes in the pages of these riveting food history books. 
Read my sports autobiography and self-improvement book, Start With Your Gift, and my latest book, Super 7, and learn how to be more creative and productive. These and other great books, audiobooks, and CDs, all for $10.99 or less while supplies last. And here's some even better news. If you spend $30 or more, we're going to give you a free CD and ship your order for free. All orders will ship in 48 hours because we want you to get these resources as soon as possible. Go to our online store at fredopiespeaks.com and order now. Be a difference maker. Use your smartphone or computer and purchase two or more paperback copies. Give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life. We're back. So let's talk about uh, 1619 and Sugar and that project. And I want you to talk about it in the context of this question. Tell people about the project and then who's been a hero in working on it, a hardship you've come up against, and a highlight you've experienced while working on the project. The hero category, I think, definitely goes to the black farmers that I talked to in reporting on the story. I talked to several, but the three that I'll mention, the first is a couple named June and Angie Provost, uh, who are fifth-generation sugarcane farmers and were subjected to outright discrimination and bank fraud, according to a whistleblower in the uh, federal government that handles crop loans. What they've been doing and the fight that they've led against this and uh, their voice and uh, what they represent as young black farmers in an industry that is overwhelmingly dominated uh, by a small number of players it's just remarkable, and their courage and their commitment to racial justice is really impressive. There's another farmer named Eddie Lewis, who I also reported on, whose story is a little different, but he also essentially came back from a career in the financial services industry. He'd worked for one of the big banks in uh, on their retail investment side, and uh, when his father was ready to sort of pass on the acreage that he'd been working for years, his son, Eddie, decided to take over and just a really impressive young man, but also facing some uh, entrenched racism and uh, efforts to kind of limit and or remove black sugarcane farmers from the fields in Louisiana. Those are definitely the heroes uh, that, that I think are important. You know, the hardship part of reporting on that story is finding the way to tell a story that captures the deep history of how sugar basically shaped this part of the world, literally North and South America, the Western Hemisphere, by virtue of the enslavement of people of African descent uh, going back to the late 15th and early 16th centuries, and really trying to find the balance between that story of brutality and barbarity with the story of resistance and agency for black folks, because it's not an easy line to balance. And so I really wanted to find the examples uh, that I could of black resistance within the context of that you know, half millennia of deep struggle against oppression for African-Americans. A highlight, I guess, is a corollary of the hardship part. So in the resistance part of the story, I don't know about you, but I'd never heard of this um, uprising called the German Coast Uprising, which took place in 1811. 
it gets a really slim mention in John Hope Franklin's From Slavery to Freedom, which, of course, it has been the Bible mm-hmm. of Black history synthetic textbook treatment. When I started reporting on this story, came across mention of this, and I started to look into it, and it turned out that it is the largest slave uprising in U.S. history, period. Estimated 500 people participated, took place about 40 minutes by car today, uh, north of New Orleans. And it didn't last long, despite the scale of it, because planters, local militia, and federal troops uh, responded very swiftly uh, to what amounted to a, a sugar rebellion or liberation army. And some of the participants were definitely either direct descendants of Haiti or were inspired by the Haitian Revolution, which had just, which just finished up within the past decade by 1811. What's also remarkable about it, besides the scale of the number of black people who participated, uh, is that um, the number of people executed were twice as many uh, as the rebellion in Nat Turner's uprising in 1831, 20 years later. To make a show of force, they uh, cut the heads off of uh, those hundreds who had been executed, and the local government insisted that their heads be put on spikes all around the plantation economy of, of, uh, of Louisiana. It was pretty surprising to encounter this story as a professionally trained historian and realize that uh, my not knowing about it was a part of a deeper project of redacting it or erasing it from historical memory. What I'm hearing you say is that systematically the status quo did not want this story to get out. There are plenty of stories like that. I remember when I was in grad school and you're at that point where you're, you've done all your coursework, you've done your comprehensive exams, and now you're feverishly searching for a a topic to write about. How come this has not been written about, or did you find any master's thesis dissertations on it? There are uh, a small number of studies. In fact, a Harvard student wrote a trade book, a book for a general audience a couple years ago. He basically wanted to, to tell the story to a general audience. My observation is not that particularly experts on Louisiana's history of slavery don't know about the German Coast Uprising. It's that it never became part of the popular history and memory of slave uprisings. And so we go from the Stono Rebellion in 1790, then Gabriel Prosser, and then Nat Turner, and then we're done. We sort of moved to the Civil War. And if we're really generous, we might talk about slave conspiracies in New York City in 1712 and 1741. Mm -hmm. But by and large, we can count on one hand the number of popularly known slave rebellions in, in America. And so that this one at scale was so significant seems not the evidence of scholars not having looked at it, but that it didn't translate for some reason, mm-hmm. it didn't move past um, what, what scholars had, had put together. In the process of an ongoing project that I've been working on, I've looked at the life of um, Simon Northup. In that autobiography, He's discussing a slave rebellion, and it sounds like a sizable one with the goal of, uh, similar to John Brown, or even Nat Turner, free the slaves, mobilize the slaves, and keep moving across the South, similar to John Brown. 
the description that Northrop gives is something very similar, but the goal is to move across and eventually into Mexico. Is this the same rebellion? Does it sound at all very similar? You might know better than me. So I didn't look, um, although I did read uh, much of 12 Years a Slave, uh, particularly for this, uh, this sugar essay. But I didn't have cause, at least in my head, to look for any of those connections. And so you might be right. Uh, I, I take um, no exception to perhaps missing that Solomon Northup was, in fact, describing, because it would have been local. I mean, it certainly mm-hmm. would have been part of the popular memory amongst the enslaved uh, that he encountered in Louisiana. It, it's certainly good, good speculation. And the few articles that I read, most of the scholarly treatments did not make that connection. So it might be that uh, it remains a link that, that hasn't really been picked up on. What are you going to do with this project? Are you continuing with it? What are you going to do with it? You know, I have been asked if, if it could lead to a book uh, on its own terms. And right now, the answer is not likely, but I haven't ruled it out. I'm, I am totally enthralled with a lot of research and a lot of reporting on massive and systemic land theft mm-hmm. that has uh, gone on for the past century uh, for black farmers. And, and part of the reason is that, again, for a lot of what people think about when they think about the wealth gap today, um, we point to, or even in a conversation about reparations, people point to headlining. And, uh, and that has been the kind of best argument for wealth inequality that is not just rooted in slavery and the Jim Crow South, but in fact extends to federal policies around housing in northern cities. But we kind of bypass the fact that black people owned a proportionate share of land in the turn of the 20th century. About 14% of all farmland in the United States was owned by black people, which wasn't because they had been given it in some kind of homestead act for black folks, and they most certainly never got their 40 acres and a mule, Mm. but because there was a lot of undeveloped land in the South that had been attached to large plantations. By the early 20th century, new taxes made that land a little bit less affordable to hoard by white landowners, and so they started selling the land out of their own economic interest, and black people started buying it and farming their own property. But by the end of the 20th century, literally by 2000, that percentage of black ownership went from 14% to less than 2%. And that's a story of wealth theft that is not part of our broader conversation. That would be the angle that I'd be most interested in if I were to expand the story of sugar slavery into a larger book. Have you uh, been in touch with your colleague at the University of Indiana that was ensconced in work on um, black farmers. Valerie Grimm, she's done incredible work. And in fact, I used her work in the sugar essay because she has looked uh, at the history of this, these forms of discrimination and particularly in the light of the Pickford lawsuits. The Pickford settlements named for a, I believe, Virginia farmer, Timothy Pickford, who was part of a class action suit, have led to the largest discrimination lawsuits paid out by the federal government in U.S. history. Most people don't know much about it, and we don't really talk about it. And so we've we've been kind of leaving a lot on the table, one way to look at it, when it comes to documenting 
the origins of contemporary forms of black-white inequality. This is The Fred Opie Show. We'll be right back. Our scripture of the day is Leviticus chapter 25, verses 10 through 12. Consecrate the 15th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 15th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the unintended vines. For it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. Malcolm X said, Every defeat contains a seed and a lesson on how to improve your performance the next time. We're back. Give me three suggested must-reads for the audience. The body of James Baldwin's work always comes to mind, just because it speaks to me in particular. Um, So I'd say that if people have never read The Fire next time, then they certainly have to read that. The other is Toni Morrison's Beloved. Uh, I read it at 15. Never (laughs) been the same uh, since. Uh, (laughs) Just because it's so powerful and confusing and arresting. There are two books uh, I'll finish with. One is uh, The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, which I just adored. And the other is a book called The Sellout by Paul Beatty, which I also adore. And both of them, you know, really cut to kind of the insanity of racism. Colson looking at 19th century slavery and Paul Beatty looking at 20th, late 20th century Los Angeles and a kind of crazy notion that freedom for black people could possibly mean owning another black person, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, hence the sellout. Because in America, the stakes that we have put in individualized economic success could possibly mean that your ability to exploit other people is the best expression of racial progress. And of course, for my own personal politics, that is uh, absolutely morally abominable. But, you know, he's right in many ways. Um, Black people have fought for the right to kind of participate in an economy that is built on human exploitation. Mm, That's good. Tell me about scholars that you've come across, let's say, in the last five years graduate students, folks are just doing exceptionally innovative, provocative work that you would want people to know about. Kianga Yamada-Taylor is at Princeton University, which, by the way, uh, in my opinion, has the best African-American, African diaspora studies department in the country with Eddie Glaude and Imani Perry, Naomi Murakawa, Kianga, Josh Gill. They're kicking butt and taking names. Kiango's work is really great because she has been writing both op-ed and at least one book to kind of help us understand Black Lives Matter movement in historical context. And then her most recent book is a book called Race for Profit, which is an incredibly sophisticated and productive contribution to how we are to understand housing discrimination after 1968 Fair Housing Act. Much of what we still talk about is what happened before that moment or even through 
the lens of blockbusting, which takes place in the 1960s. But what she points us to is that once the government started engaging the private sector in various programs to help black people become homeowners, those programs were ultimately another form of extraction. They were less about securing black middle-class home ownership and wealth building and more about enriching banks and real estate agents, all under the aegis of what she calls inclusion. And so she has developed this analytical term called predatory inclusion, which I hope, and I'm going to do my part, becomes part of our everyday language about the history of housing in this country. Hmm. The three former students, I'll just name check them because I'm proud of them. Andrew Carl, who's at UVA, is really great scholar of black property ownership and uh, various tax and financial and racist schemes to take black people's property. He wrote a book called The Land Was Ours and is working on another book that extends that theme. Tanisha Ford uh, wrote about how clothing shaped the politics of social movement and civil rights activism in the 1960s. It's called Liberated Threads, which is just incredible. She's become this really terrific scholar of of culture through the lens of fashion and beauty and other aspects of culture. And uh, then Carl Sutler, who's written a book called Presumed Criminal, which just came out last year and looks explicitly at New York City's uh, policing practices among black youth in the mid-century, so between 1930s and 1960s. For anyone interested in stop and frisk or the exonerated five, the history of those policies and the mistreatment of black youth uh, is told in, in Carl's new book. Last questions. I'm going to give you $10 million to fund work that you would love to see supported. $10 million. Whose work would you fund? My own. <laughs> <laughs> this is because I've got two projects that need funding that I'm very committed to. One is a massive study to look at how diversity and inclusion efforts are failing in all sectors of society, and then to present evidence of the most effective strategies and interventions that people ought to be adopting. And the goal would be to establish industry standards so that when a company or an agency or a college or university says that they're committed to diversity, that claim could be tested by an actual set of policies and practices that are effective, rather than just saying, we have affinity group, we do programming doing Black History Month and Women's History Month, and we have a chief diversity officer. Truth is, we don't quite know what mix of those efforts and others work. And so um, I'm fundraising now for an initiative that would figure that out. And the other is to start a podcast that would be pretty expensive to put together. It would basically make the argument that Kindergartners need to learn bias ed akin to sex ed, but focus not on sexuality and sexual hygiene, but in fact on how bigotry is a normal part of socialization for kids if they're not taught differently. They will pick up on all of the social inequalities, the racism in the air we breathe, and the systemic forms of discrimination if we actually don't intervene early and often. That's a very expensive project as well. That's what I'm interested in. (laughs) I love it. And definitely worthy of the $10 million. Last question. I'd like you to write virtual book of success. And in that project, you could have, who knows, 10 chapters, seven chapters. 
I'd like to know the chapter titles of just three of the chapters in your book of success. And success in this scenario is defined as having the greatest positive impact on the world around you. You got some tough questions, man. You put, put folks on the spot. Um, <laughs> so I guess the immediately comes to mind, yeah, one chapter would be know your history. <laughs> Another chapter would be care for your neighbors and your community. The third chapter is uh, happiness isn't found in a paycheck. <laughs> so, I like that. I, I like that. I think I think you should take that ten million dollars and run with that project too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. That is a Khalil Muhammad waxing eloquently about history, life, and the things that we need to do a whole lot better of in this world. Khalil, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks so much, Fred. I appreciate it. That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show. If you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would recommend to you. 